Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Ice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said, once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk about the games that my friends and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, I've said this before, I am a big consumer of podcasts. I spend a lot of time traveling to and from work, uh, and I like to listen to a good podcast on my way, particularly gaming podcasts. I, of course, uh, this being a gaming podcast, I'm always looking for more good you know, shop talk and crunch. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to find a show that isn't totally competitive focused all the time. Look, that's fine. I do enjoy competitive gaming podcasts. I listen to a lot of them. You will hear me have some of the, the hosts of those shows on from time to time. But I also like a little bit of historical crunch. And I, I like a little bit of narrative gaming as well, depending on the system, obviously, because uh, Marvel Crisis Protocol, for example, is you're not going to get the historical chat, right? But today I'm really excited for a couple of reasons. One, because I get to talk about something that I've been called on a lot recently and <clears throat> we should probably talk about. But two, I get to do it with someone who is one of the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts to listen to in the bolt action world, which has that nice mix of theme, crunch, good rules talk, not just listing, but then also, you know, the unpacking of events, talking about gameplay. I'm a big fan of these guys, and they come from a part of Australia that often gets neglected when we start talking about the bolt action scene. Of course, I'm talking about Perth and the Historical Miniature Gamers podcast. And I have my good buddy Gorshin on today, and we are going to be talking about the armies of the United States. Gorshin, longtime listener, man. So glad that I'm able to talk to you today, brother. Welcome to the show. Look, Brad, it's really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. With an intro like that, I think everything is going to be downhill from here, so so I'm happy to call it. I think it's uh, probably a good place to start with a, with a return on, on compliments here. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm actually, for a long time, I wasn't really a podcast consumer. I was a creator for, for a longer time that I was a consumer. And it wasn't until I tuned into your show that I actually went, hey, there's a lot of really awesome stuff out here on, on Cast Die. So, and that's what got me into actually listening to podcasts, not just creating them. So, yeah, really happy to be here, Brad. I'm very excited to be on the show. Thanks, man. It, look, it's just, uh, you know, one guy talking over here with a microphone. I love to talk about games, and I'm glad you dig it. And, man, as I said, I'm a big fan of your show. Um, and clearly, you and I have been sort of ping-ponging back and forth on social media for a little while. And I know that on your show, you mentioned that you were going to try my idea way back when of using a medium machine gun as a five-man rifle team if you kind of are forced to stick within one platoon without having to pay the quote-unquote lieutenant tax for a second platoon if you got like 50 points left over and you want more dudes on the ground. Now, you took that to the extreme because you took three medium machine guns and before all the competitive players in the world, hi Al, messaged me to say, 
you won an event doing that. So that's where I want to build to today. And I'm very excited to do that. But if we are going to get to that, I think we need to talk about the armies of the United States because that's the list you did it with, right? Yeah, and and actually we're on some weaky, uh, weak, shaky foundations there, Brad, because I actually don't think the lieutenants are attacks at all. But <laughs> yeah, so we we've got some uh, some ground to cover here, my friend. Well, I actually don't necessarily think they're attacks either, but uh, the the that is definitely the meta community chat that it's oh this is a waste you shouldn't do it blah 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 i know that you don't like a good lieutenant team or an officer in general from what you've said before on your show and i i'm so glad that you brought that up (laughs) well let's talk about where you play first because i did mention in the intro that you are part of the hmg show the historical miniature gamers podcast and that it is a part of Australia that is not commonly discussed as part of, you know, the trifecta or the however many Australian bolt-action podcasts that have been running out there for a while. You guys are on the opposite side of the country. And for those who aren't aware, Australia is massive. It's about the size of the continental U.S. And Melbourne is like, would be like Atlanta on that map. (laughs) <laughs> and you guys would be somewhere between San Francisco and L.A. And so it is a ridiculous distance between the two, given how few people are in Australia and how it's a massive desert and basically Mad Max between us. <laughs> so it isn't a wonder why all the cities on the East Coast, when they're talking about you know all the big bolt action events and all the games and this, that, and the other thing, it's not a surprise that often Perth gets left out. Um, And that's really unfair because you guys have a rich bolt action scene. Can you tell us a little bit about Perth and some of the events that you guys run? Because you guys have a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, uh, I guess some some geography lessons for a bit more context. Uh, the the state that I'm in, Western Australia, is actually larger than Texas. A lot of people don't realize you can fit Texas in WA with uh, mm-hmm. with room to spare. Uh, the the city itself is actually suffers from some pretty serious urban sprawl. And uh, one of the things I will point out, particularly to to our local bolt action players, as an apology, uh, I, when we had the other guys of the HMG on on your show. Uh, Jacob and, and Dan, they said that the f- furthest our players typically travel is 45 minutes. Now, that would be true if they were just uh, driving from the top end of the city down to roughly the center, which is where most of our events occur. Mm-hmm. There's actually a group down in uh, Albany who drives about four and a half hours to our events. And I think in the last three or four years, they've only missed one event. And that's because basically COVID restrictions meant they couldn't travel that far. So, so those guys, yeah, were understandably quite cut uh, that they were left out. Uh, there's a good five or six of them that make that trip as often as they can, which is which is phenomenal that they can support us. It is. Uh, our main two events happen around April and November. Those are our kind of teeth out competitive events. Mm-hmm. They're run by Outpost Sixty Thirty, which which we had mentioned previously on the show. They're one of the big generic tabletop communities or clubs here they don't they're not bolt action focused they have it's a committee who who basically rents out a hold and lets people play tabletop games and they run events and that sort of thing and prizes and they do a really fantastic job at that so they're they're kind of the community facilitators there's a lot of 
like garage gamers and and get garage gaming groups and so skulls which is the that event that happens is kind of a great place to get involved with all of the other players those ones are the, the big events um the scene's recently been trying to grow and and try to get a few other events off the ground in terms of we've had some kind of closed door events where we like to try and break bolt action uh, that seems <laughs> to be something that we do there's something happens when you cross the nullabore and you just you just try to basically break things as they come across uh and so there's a guy local here john beeson who who's a big part of the vietnam uh supplement mm -hmm. the, the community one vc on the trail and so he is a big part of that and he also runs a firefight league at the moment where he's uh basically trying to turn firefight into a campaign skirmish with Great. experience and and things that happen as they uh experience and level ups and and points increases and escalation and all the other good stuff you'd expect from a campaign one of the other things that we really like to do is is we're real big on retelling history mm -hmm. uh, as best as you can with a war game i think it's it's important to to be respectful but also not be arrogant at the same time and think you're you're recreating history right uh, and so one of the ones, the events that I ran was uh, Operation Varsity, which was the last combat jump of World War II, happened mm -hmm. right in sort of March 45. That was, we played three different systems over three different days over a couple of months uh, that culminated in a big 3v3 battle. One of the other ones that was really successful was one of the local guys in the club that I play at, Rocky Arm Historical Gamers, which is one of the, the southern clubs, mm -hmm. is... Uh, he we he created a, a meta map of uh, Lorraine, which was I think it was the preamble to Market Garden or something mm -hmm. like this, or it was a counterattack after Market Garden by the 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 Panzer Group in that region, and he had basically a hex map of that region of France, and you had three company commanders, which are players, and a, a battalion commander, which was another player, and they moved chit and tokens around this strategic map, and we. We, he he wrote this entire new game that we played and then when two units met that would then turn into a game of bolt action nice. and the meta map state would inform what units you had and could bring and that sort of thing so it was that was a lot of fun it was it was a lot of work um and we played that one in 15 mil just because trying to supply nine armies uh had a significant mm -hmm. cost barrier so that's that's the bolt action scene as it was Going forward, I'm trying to run my own event. Uh, I think the main thing that we're missing is team events here in Perth. Yeah, I really, I really like playing with my friends. Mm -hmm. um, for for a long time, I wasn't very competitive, uh, just in terms of anything. I didn't really care about winning. That has since changed. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. But the good thing is, I can I can take that out and put it back in the box. Um, exactly. And so that that's the thing that's missing for me is like I want to play with my friends, not necessarily against them. And so I'm bringing up a team event, which is I'm basically taking the World Team Championship players pack and, and squashed some of the, the team sizes and the rules and, and mucked about it with a little bit, added a few side missions, because I really like drafting. Um, mm -hmm. I play I play Magic, for example. My favorite thing to do in Magic is, is play drafts. And so not knowing exactly what you're going to bring or what you're going to come up against, even when you know your opponent, I think is a really refreshing additional bit of strategy. Absolutely. So I, I actually kind of ran a, a poll slash survey on the local group and like the event was like unanimously panned. Nobody wanted it. And oh, I was no. like, and I was like, you know what? Uh, one of the, I caught up with a beer with one of the, the TOs who runs all of the, the skulls events. And he was like, 
look, man, just just run the event. Whatever you need, I'm behind you. Just do it how you want. Don't pull any punches. Don't cut any corners. Don't try to please the masses. Just write the players' pack and the event how you want it. And I did. And this is so far, we've got 27 players signed up. Which... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, yeah, it's teams of three just because I wasn't sure how many people I was going to get. Uh, and 27 signed up, and there's one or two teams in the bag that are just kind of double-checking calendars and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, And and this is this is the thing that surprised me when I chatted to the Warlord guys in, in Las Vegas, is that their their Las Vegas Open was was 22 players on the day. I think yeah. they had 24 or 25 registered. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, of course, expecting to lose one or two teams. You always lose 10 to 20% of your attendance anyway. Especially in the era of COVID. Yeah, yeah. 10 to 20% is a good day in the era of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And and if I can um, if I can outdo uh, Las Vegas Open as my first event, look, I'm, I'll probably just retire at that point. <laughs> No, man, it means that you need to run every event from now on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who likes to spin a lot of plates. Not necessarily spin them all successfully, but I do like to spin a lot of plates. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, good luck with that. Well, it's always good to play as well, right? It keeps yeah, it fresh. Yeah. And that's one of the exciting things uh, when I recently ran uh, Easter Front. And this is one of the first episodes that we've recorded after that event. Because Lee Avery and I were co-toing and because we had an odd number of players we ended up gumbying but we were oh, yeah. able to trade off between rounds so that one person was able to do data entry and glad hand and you know kiss babies and answer <laughs> rules questions and the other person uh got to play so oh, even well, though you know we to'd i got three good games in at that event and i actually realized after the first day uh, my army was way more effective than I meant it to be as a Gumby. And it wasn't brutal. It yeah. was it was a Warlord Chinese army. I had a T-26, which is the light AT gun, one machine gun, light tank. A that probably costs two. 20 points. Yeah, yeah exactly. A triple two, a... Um, you know, just a couple of rifleman squads, literally with nothing else. I had the 14 Freeman squad. I had one big sword squad and uh, I, I had a light AT gun and, <laughs> you know, a couple bits and pieces, a, a mortar. And I had one guerrilla squad tooled to go out and put the herd on. And I ended up winning way <laughs> more than I meant to. And so then day two, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm fixing this problem. Uh, clearly, this is my play style. And so I switched it out for a German army, uh, Battle of the Bulge German army with a Sturm Tiger, guaranteed oh, yes. to not win a game. And boy, did it not win a game. It was great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was fun. And just being able to, to put, but almost everyone I played in that event was U.S., and yeah, okay. um, Lee Avery, uh, the other TO for that event, is my regular gaming partner. He also yeah. has been painting up a beautifully Buffalo-themed uh, American army. So I've been playing oh, awesome. against him tons. And uh, I've been teaching my old club captain from, from my 40K days, Dave Atkins, how to play recently. And he, he's learning how to play with Germans. And uh, in that process, I keep playing Americans as well. And it's gone, okay, I actually am getting my head around this again. Um, because I am embarrassed to say when we, when we talk just to get to our main topic, when we talk about Americans and the term easy mode, if we go back to the 
Ghost Army podcast, someone pointed out recently that I may have been the one who coined the phrase easy mode. Right. Um, and I feel really bad about that. It is a little bit, I mean, the, the national rules are forgiving, and we'll get to that, but I don't necessarily think that the army should be universally panned as easy mode. Shall we dig into, well, let me ask you this. You clearly don't believe that the U.S. is quote-unquote easy mode. Where do you sort of see the U.S. sort of in the quote-unquote power tiers of national rules for bolt action? Uh, power tiers for national rules? I think on that scale uh, in isolation, they're they're pretty strong. They're, yeah. they're national rules bang for your buck is pretty good. And that's where they um, earn their their phrase. I think training wheels might be like uh, easy mode. I would I would definitely litigate against. But training wheels, I would probably concede that it's one training wheel, but not two. Uh, <laughs> and that's that. that's that's really just the army special rules. And but it's good to know that the, that you're the person we need to arrest for coming up with that. Sorry, uh, <laughs> he says not sorry. So let's talk about those national rules uh, because look, I think the U.S aren't the quote-unquote most powerful nation in bolt action. No. I don't, but I think they are incredibly forgiving uh, in the way that they sort of break a couple of the core rules of bolt action. And their unit selections can be very competitive. And you can take uh, a quote-unquote strong army and take something historically themed at the same time because of the way the U.S. outfitted everything the same. Yeah. Uh, ex- uh, Pacific, obviously, is an exception to that. But yeah. let's talk about those national rules first. So, obviously, the one that sort of everyone talks about and gets everyone's attention is fire and maneuver. U.S. infantry models equipped with rifles, carbines, and bars do not suffer the minus one to hit penalty for shooting and moving. Uh, which means that if you give those models an advance order and then they move and they shoot, they don't have the minus one to hit, making U.S. infantry basically as good to shoot as anyone in the game who isn't moving. And often what you'll see on a tabletop is once you move long range, some sort of cover, if it's heavy cover, you're often then hitting on a six on six. However, if you are the U.S., you can move, shoot, and if someone's in cover at long range, you're hitting on sixes. And the math difference of being able to hit with a six versus six on six is unbelievable. <laughs> and it really makes them forgiving if you need to reposition because you are able to still reach out and hit someone. And when you're rolling sixes, you're not going to be usually hitting a ton. But again, it's the application of pins. And all you yeah. got to do is hit once and you're hitting that pin and the U.S. can be very good. And not to mention the bar is a cheapest chips version of an LMG that is much cheaper, has fewer shots, but also doesn't take up a second guy. And so the bar at, at times has been considered one of the best infantry based ga- weapons in the game uh, for good reason. I think for this reason, the U.S. are one of the easiest armies to learn with but going from u.s to another army whoo that can be hard because i played u.s for a while in the early days of bolt action 
Uh, I took him to the first Bolt Action Grand Tournament in Sydney. And I have to say, then jumping back to Germans, which I've been uh, painting up before that at that time, was a little hard because all of a sudden, oh, yeah, there's a minus one to hit. And it was that (laughs) rule in particular. Um, What do you think? Do you agree with me on that? Um, What are your thoughts about that rule? So uh, you've you've unfortunately already tested my patience with three strikes here, Brad. It is a B A R. It is not a bar. It's an initialization, not an acronym. Sorry. So I just had to get in front of that before we really got carried away. Uh, it's I spent too much too many uh, hours editing Bolt Action Radio podcast back in the day, and Dano, God bless him, is from my hometown of Boston, and he took every opportunity to pronounce it as the bear. Uh, and that I once he did that, and I listened to it that many times, I will never refer to it as anything but a ba. Uh, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, look, I think you pretty much hit the hit the nail on the head. The the bar is a is a fantastic weapon. Uh, it's thirty inches, two shots, five points per man. Right. And as you pointed out, it doesn't take up um, your second rifleman. The only real caveat with it is it's not super common to get more than one in a squad uh you have to kind of hunt for a particular squad to get to get more than one which means that yeah your your average rifleman squad will go up to 12 men one with a bar at that's 13 shots for 12 guys which is not bad but in mm-hmm. terms of pound for pound firepower uh yeah it's it's not not necessarily uh the best way to do it in terms of density right you know you can take exactly. a German squads with two LMGs, while expensive, um, you're dishing out 12, you know, 12 shots with with only like five or six guys in the squad. So there's a there's a trade off there for for sure. Does that mean LMGs are good? No. Does that mean they're costed appropriately? Hell no. But thank you. <laughs> yeah, the the BAR is, is a fantastic weapon. Um, the the thing that uh, that catches a lot of players um, is that. The LMG it does not count towards fire maneuver. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's been there's a few times I've caught that up, and then of course you've got British chindits which can fire maneuver with an LMG. But we're talking about US's uh, opinion as training wheels, not not the British. Correct. So I'll, I'll leave that one for now. I'll leave that bugbear where it is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I think that let let's go back to your example there because if we look at a six man German squad with two LMGs, we're talking about. It per, Providing they're regular, yeah. 60 points for your basic six guys. Yeah. Then you have 40 points for the two LMGs. Yeah. Uh, compare that to the Americans, 12 dudes, so 120 points, if, again, if we're going regular. Yeah. Plus 10 points, or sorry, five points for one bar, 10 points for two. For a 20, 25-point difference, you're not seeing a significant difference in firepower, but you are being, I mean, there's a couple key factors. One, again, you can move and don't have that minus one. So they're Absolutely. far more maneuverable, yeah. allowing more versatility. And in a game where you're trying to get to objectives, which is my next point in my notes, that is where that rule, the fire maneuver rule, comes in crucially. Now, yeah. when you're learning to play with Americans, it's often, uh, people often are like, oh, I have to move every turn. You really don't. Um, yeah. You also you want to pick your opportunities to run or walk from one place to another. And oftentimes the other thing that people assume is a you don't want to go down because then you don't get to fire and maneuver mm. or B, you don't want to run because, again, you don't you're not firing and maneuvering. Firing yeah. maneuver is a great rule, but yeah. 
in bolt action, particularly bolt action version two, going down is huge. It's it's that minus two to hit. And if Very you need, good. if you are getting shot, if that's a moment, you definitely need to do it. But also, if you need to run to get into position, I would rather run, get in position, and then be able to be in cover and maybe move then around the cover or within cover. But I don't need to use that rule every turn. The other big difference that we were talking about, and I know I'm switching gears back to the example, the German squad only has six wounds. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right? Whereas the American hell, has yeah. twice that, 12. And so the American has the American squad has quite the chin for you to punch and still be combat effective slash be able to go out and achieve what you need them to on the tabletop. Whereas if you do enough wounds to that German squad, Whew, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> now, that German squad does have, uh, what, six more inches range? And that's a, uh, a something I would actually disagree with because if you're standing and firing, yeah, the German squad's got an extra six mm -hmm. inches with your LMG, but you've got fire maneuver. So advancing and firing in terms of shooting probability is actually the same, except the difference could be it gets you in range or gets you in a better position. Exactly. I think it's it's good that you mentioned that the fire maneuver can also be a trap if you get caught up on Ooh, using yeah. it. But I think it's that's one of those things where um, understanding the board that you're playing on, knowing your angles of attack, and moving from cover to cover, just like you would as as any good platoon commander or half decent platoon commander, I should say, uh, yeah, is is a is an absolutely crucial part. Is is keeping your guys in cover, uh, as we pointed out with the wounds. That the great thing about um, particularly American squads is that attrition tends to just gradually weaken the squad over time. As you lose mm -hmm. kind of riflemen or a BAR, you only lose two squads. And if you get an exceptional damage, you know you might lose the NCO or something like this, but with a with other squads, particularly with LMGs or or, or um, not so much with ARs and SMGs, but if you lose if you lose the LMG, that's a massive amount of firepower that you've lost. Oh yeah, out of the chunk. So, anyways, we're preaching to the choir. Take the ARs. Have a great time. Yeah, exactly. Particularly if you're running Marines, because oh, yeah. they can take all of them. Yeah, yeah. three BARs is very disgusting. Yeah, uh, but uh, you mentioned earlier that. You can only ever, I mean, you usually take one BAR in a squad. Uh, now you have me saying it. I usually take at least two if I can. Yeah. And so it's just, it's one of those things where I, if the squad can only take one BAR, I will very, I'll be very reluctant to actually include it in my force uh, as during list building. If I'm out to win, that is. Yeah. Uh, when I went to the grand tournament, I was... I, I took one per squad because that's what I had painted mm. and I was running for a particular battle at that time. And I would, after one game, I absolutely regretted not having more bars. And yeah. to this day, um, because the very talented warlord Tobu from LRDG fame painted that army, I have not added the extra bars, um, right. but I have recently... <laughs> found because i have a winter theme army i have found some of the um the korea book special bar characters i've gotten from friends so i now have the models to paint up to add awesome. to my existing great code american army um, i just need to actually sit down and try and paint match one of the most talented painters i know which <laughs> is uh i assure you not my idea of a good time uh but i will because i i really want uh, that now I do have quite a few SMG guys, but 
you don't really need that many in this army unless you're running something like paratroopers, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Mm. But let's talk about the other big national rule that sort of makes the U.S. Army particularly forgiving, especially for new players. And I would argue that the other big rule that makes them, and yes, obviously there are other rules, and we'll get to those in a sec, is modern communications. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which means when units take an order test to move on from reserve onto the table, that is outflank or just regular reserve, and plenty of missions force you to do that with half your army or more on any given game, you do not take the usual minus one penalty. You use your basic morale value instead. Over the years, the number of times I have failed that test by, by one, one yeah. Yeah. makes me want to throw up. <laughs> Just to think about all those moments, particularly with my DAC when I, I depended on my horches coming on. And yes, veteran horches, and no, not coming on. It was infuriating. And yeah. so this is just that little bit more forgiving with bad dice, and it it allows you to, to have more consistency when bringing your forces on the table. And again, that is just forgiving. Um, Gorchin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's I think something about um, 2d6s and bell curves is something that a lot of people don't realize, mm -hmm. is that a, a 2d6 is not, it's not like a, a 7 plus, it's not the same as a 3 plus, the odds are actually quite different. They are. And, and so you kind of get diminishing returns at the top end, like the difference between a 9 and a 10 is only a few percent, but the difference between a 7 and an 8 plus is like 15%. It is. Uh, and so, so having that plus one at that top end, yeah, it just makes a massive difference. I would also, this is one of those things where I would point out that a lot of players think outflank is more of a trap than it is. Um, and I play outflank pretty much as much as I can with my US. Mm -hmm. Just a part of that is because you've got modern communication, so you can do it a little bit better than other armies. But also, it's it's the way that I like to play. I like having yeah. um, just really concentrating down one flank. And sometimes I will actually chuck the out flank on the opposite the flank, mm -hmm. so not the one that I'm attacking, just to really destabilize whatever the hell they're trying to do. That really just comes down to their list and what the scenario looks like. You know, if it's if it's key positions or or an, where you've got three objectives across the middle. I might punch for the left and the center and I'll outflank on the right if I think mm -hmm. I'm going to be confident getting the left. And so that way, yeah, I might not, I might actually not be able to contest or capture the objective, but I'll sure as hell slow them down. And that's the, that's the key thing is modern communications and fire maneuver is really what makes people think that the, uh, the U S is training wheels, mm -hmm. uh, or easy mode. And yeah, I will, I will happily admit that you get to ignore the movement penalty in advance, and you get to ignore one on the reserve rolls. That's fair enough. Training wheels, yeah, I'm not going to argue that point. Yeah, but I think, to make your point, I really do think that if you are planning to run an outflank heavy army, having that minus one disappear is huge. Yeah. But then when you combine that with the fire and maneuver, where yep. you aren't getting the minus one to, to hit when you walk in and shoot, is huge. Again, when I one of the the armies that I outflanked the most with was my DAC, which I was talking about a second ago. <laughs> but one of the reasons why they were particularly devastating is when the horches would come in, I would have a squad tooled out with submachine guns that would jump out. They were particularly brutal because a they get two shots each, but also yeah. b 
they don't have the minus one. And when you are able to zip up to somebody, dump out and unload, you're hitting on twos if you're within six inches. And, you know, 12 shots, hitting on twos, you're going to cause some damage. Um, yeah. And then at least you're going to put some pins on and then people are going to have to deal with you. Meanwhile, the rest of your army is coming down on them. And I think that that is. But again, it's also can be it can be an easy trap because. Yeah. Yeah. Some people will go a little too heavy with the outflank, meaning that their opponents are able to take their army apart piecemeal. Because I mean, obviously the best way to deal with outflanking, if someone's you know someone's lining up for it, is to put some stuff on ambush. But it's do I psychologically? It's the mind game. Do I yeah. get them to put their yeah. things on ambush and then I don't bring it in, so they're wasting a turn with their unit. But in doing so, I'm wasting a turn with my unit off the board. Uh, it can also lead to those fun situations where you're like, okay, oh, cool, yeah, but here's the objective on this side. Clearly, I'm going to go for that one. And everyone turns and ambushes because they think you're about to outflank with a crazy <laughs> unit. Then they come in on the other side and you're just waving at the rear of their unit going, Haha, sorry, <laughs> not shooting at my unit this turn. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm good enough at poker. I think every time I've done an outflank, my opponent's like, yeah, I expected them to come in on that side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fairly obvious in a lot of situations, but there are missions out there, for example, yeah. that ha where there are five objectives and you mm -hmm. can kind of do the fake out of, hey, I'm going to ignore those two and I'm going to definitely take these three and then I'm going to work my way over to maybe one or more yeah. on my way over. But it's the, you know, you're coming in on one side, you're overwhelming one flank and then you're rolling into the rest of their force. And it's just that that momentum where you're able to exactly. run through yeah. someone. Uh, and again, Americans do that very well because they're able to move and not have that minus one at a distance and so you can get that constant pressure and in moving into your opponent's army but then again you also need to be careful that they're not going to just take you off if you're walking straight down an open field anyway i think you've really touched on something there about the u.s is that if you want to win with them you have to dictate tempo you've oh absolutely your yeah. opponent has to be on your clock you have a lot of tools to to do that but if you're uh, say, for example, I played against the Italians a little while ago and they, you know, they got all their fortifications and dug in and stuff. And it's like the Italians do not care about the clock. They nope. don't care. You can dictate as much tempo as you want. He's got all day. And that was a, that was a learning curve for me, that one. Yeah. Whereas if you're running a highly mobile, I was running my auto Sahariana for a while, yep. which is basically an all truck zipped up Italian yep. army. Yeah. Um, with a lot of uh, soft skin, uh, auto cannon, and uh, light AT gun vehicles mm -hmm. running around. With that, again, it's it's that refused flank. You go straight in, you smash yeah. one side, then you come around the other way. Again, you're choosing the tempo. And I think that is my play style. And so, surprisingly, I mean, I think the U.S. should be my play style. But I think <laughs> we'll get into why they bore me to tears in a minute. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, spoilers. Let's talk gyro stabilizers. <laughs> Because I've been told that I play U.S. wrong all the time. What, you know, People tell me, you're not doing it right, and shake their fist at me because I'm not running veteran tanks to take advantage of this. I famously run regular and almost everything, U.S. in particular. But the gyro-stabilizers rule is great. Um, when a weapon is described as gyro-stabilizers in a vehicle's entry, it does not suffer the minus one to hit 
for shooting and moving if the crew are veteran. This does not apply to vehicles that are inexperienced or regular, nor does it apply to any coax machine guns. So it just means that the big guns on tanks that have this rule, and I say big guns in air quotes because I do realize that things like <laughs> stewards have it on their little AT gun, their light AT gun. <laughs> that is a big factor. And yeah. you know, how many times do you miss a shot with a tank by one? Uh, it happens more times than I can count. And to be able to have that is really good. Now, you have run tanks with this rule. What is your experience with it? Look, generally speaking, um, I would say 80% of the time this rule is a trap. Uh, the, the reason I say that is because medium tanks, so most of the tanks that have gyro stabilizers are medium tanks, which are pretty expensive. And they're, generally speaking, overcosted anyway. And then to slap on an extra tax by going to a veteran as well is not not a pill I can swallow. Uh, if I the the flip side of this, uh, that's actually not a national rule, but it basically feels like one, is that the medium anti-tank guns, particularly the 75 mil, actually has an upgraded HE. So it's a two inch HE instead of a one inch for a medium anti-tank gun. Mm -hmm. That's that is worth its weight in gold oh, yeah. for U.S. tanks, not the gyro stabilizers. Yeah, I would say that national... I, I'm glad you brought that up because that's in my notes. Um, that is something we see in a couple of other nations, but it's the yeah. U.S. in particular that capitalize on that. Yeah. And I, if, if I'm doing my, my costings right on a lot of the tanks, I don't think you're really paying anything for that. I don't think so either. I think you basically get it for free. Because the they, one... Because the yeah. Americans needed that, clearly. <laughs> the the one thing I will say that it isn't a trap on is if you take the Sherman Howitzer um, mm -hmm. with, the, with the 105, that's yeah. a pretty cheap medium tank. Like, don't get me wrong, it's still a medium tank, so it's on the, it's on the expensive side. But a regular sub-200 points, uh, which is really nice. And so you can get it for veteran, veteran for, I think, a little over 200, maybe 220-ish, uh, and some change, maybe depending on which exact variant. But that is, that's still a lot of points. Uh, don't get me wrong. But I think if you're going to take a gyro-stabilized anything, take the medium howitzer. Because slapping a three-inch template on anything that you can see well, and ignoring the moving is horrifying, to say the least. Yeah, exactly right. Now, the last rule is air superiority. Now, in version one, air observers were far deadlier, and right. this was a big deal. Version two, not so much. I'll admit, when I was going through my notes to talk with you today, I was thinking, why is it that I don't like Americans or like playing Americans all that often? Well, the last time I went to a big event with Americans, which was the Grand Tournament in Sydney, I took an air observer, and out of six games, I hit myself eight times because you get to use them twice in a turn. And so I think I landed hits on my opponent four times. And in one game, <laughs> I hit twice, and it was amazing. And I decimated their big vehicles and then just walked through their army. It was great. But eight times, I hit myself. And that felt really bad uh, because you're paying 100-plus points for this guy. And then you're you're actually not only not getting a lot out of it, but he actually hurts you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, I guess that just comes down to my luck. I know some people love observers. I am not really a fan. 
In fact, I actually played against an Air Observer in at the Easter event, yeah. and I hadn't faced an Observer, an Air Observer, in years. Yeah. And I actually had to look up the rules, but I still page, don't. Page eighty four, Brad. Come on. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like it's just there's some rules I use all the time. That isn't one of them. Uh, none of yeah. my opponents use Air Observers regularly. You know the people I play casually, and I just hadn't run one since that awful experience. And so, yeah, being able to use an air observer twice in a game rather than once is big as long as you're able to hit with them. And people don't have a million AA assets to get rid of them off the table before they do hit. Um, what, are you, what are your experiences with this? Clearly, you know what page it's on, so I'm assuming you have a different opinion than I on these. I've played a lot of air observers when I first started um, bolt action. Um, I did also take one to a tournament a couple of times. Uh, so I have actually won a tournament with an Air Observer. I don't think the Air Observer won me the game or won me any of the games. That's for sure. The main thing about it is it's a and and I think people kind of overemphasize the negative risk. It's a one in six chance you Air Observe yourself, which feels really awful when it happens. Oh, yeah. There's, there's no two ways about it. But there's also a two plus that you don't. Um, and I think that's one of those things where if you just change the language a little bit, if you changed, if you turned it into like, I don't know, a two plus armor save or something like this against an air observer, people would be like, oh, that's awesome. That's really good. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and so you, you kind of have to rephrase a little bit. But that being said, I find them really difficult to to put into a competitive list. It's um, no other unit that you buy comes with that much of a downside for mm -hmm. that much of a cost. Right. Yeah, there's there's you know mixed quality where if you lose if you lose a couple of guys, there's a chance you you uh, go down in veterancy. That is a much easier pill to swallow than getting your own unit deleted off the board. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of ifs and buts, and and the maths don't really like add up in terms of take one, not take one. Uh, if you if you look at it purely statistically, you should kind of take one, but also at the same time, it's like, are you just better spending the hundred points elsewhere? And generally, I would say if you're out to win, yeah. But that all being said, they are super fun. All of the games that I've played where I've had an observer, I've had the best time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. If you had told me on the last round of that tournament after I'd hit myself a second time in one game <laughs> and I hated life. I was, hey, you could have, because in that event I was running an M5 Stewart. Yeah, okay. Um, which isn't the machine gun boat. Okay, that is the you M3, have some taste. The M5. Yeah. W if, would I rather trade out my Air Observer and the uh, Stewart for, say, oh, I don't know, a Sherman or a Lee or you know, anything else and then have points left over to maybe add, yeah. you know, a light or uh, I think I had a light howitzer already, something else. Yeah. Would you rather replace those two dice with those two dice? I absolutely would have done that. Yeah. Um, I'd be there with you, Brad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. The M5 Stewart, I think is a much maligned tank uh, because everyone yeah. looks at the cheaper version or at the Chaffee, which is the same quote unquote weight class price range. But having, you know, a light tank 
with nine plus armor on the front is a lot of fun when people shoot at it the first time and then don't realize which <laughs> steward it is. And you go, I don't care. Um, yeah, it's got a little chin on it that come and hit me. But anyway, you have taken the U.S. to a competitive event, one that isn't necessarily historically themed, one that is more teeth kicking in sort of yeah. experience. Uh, and you took what is widely considered to be one of the worst options in the game, the medium machine gun, and you went nuts with it and you took three. And again, that's another one of those hidden national rules for the U.S. Just like the Soviets can buy three anti-tank teams in one slot, the U.S. can buy three medium machine guns in one slot. Why did you decide to go with three? And what was your experience? I guess talk to us about the list as a whole. And you, I've heard you say that the three machine guns was an integral part of it. So uh, the, the, the story has to begin a little bit before the list. So the event was uh, a single platoon, theater selectors and are included as well so you could take one theater selector okay. and that was a, that was a big part of it the other one is um uh it's it's in the it's in the name of the podcast historical miniature gamers i'm a i'm a big history nerd um, particularly like war history i'm the kind of person who found out that the australians had a paratrooper battalion and then um could not find anything about it online so then i went on holiday to canberra and i sat in the reading room at the australian war memorial loaning out documents, primary source material for about two days, um, just reading about them just because I wanted to know more. Uh, so when I set out to for this event, I'm or any event really, I'm always looking for something that inspires uh, a different type of list. I for I've done a couple of tournaments where I've gone, you know, all teeth out. You get your flamethrower engineers, maybe a flamethrower vehicle, and and your medium howitzer and all that good stuff that everybody knows and loves. You take your marine squads with three BARs, light transport, cheap water dice. Yeah, the, the usual bread and butter. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sorry, uh, I was yawning over here. I'm sorry. Was, <laughs> the same old boring stuff. Yeah, I got it. Okay, yeah. And sorry. so I was like, I was like, I need something different. And and so I looked for um, historical inspiration. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of just paratroopers in general. I think the idea of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane into combat is is absurd, stupid, right. and and somehow also weirdly effective if done correctly right yeah it's the shock and awe of oh yeah. wait there are enemy troops where i least expect them how did they get there oh no and i think it's the mutual shock and awe because what i've read about combat drops is that they're not exactly peaceful affairs no. so i think just everybody's really confused and suppressed and has no idea what's going on and and i'm an agent of chaos so i love all of this <laughs> yeah okay and so so i was looking through all of the different theater selectors and most of the most of the u.s ones are pretty pretty boring uh, you know, there's not like fancy units or weird special rules. The newer ones in the D-Day uh, sectors are really cool. You get yeah. some more special rules. And also the ones that came out in the uh, Italian um, underbelly yeah, book. Yeah, the soft underbelly books got some really interesting stuff, right? Yeah, and I, but I looked at all of them and none of them really grabbed me. And then I was um, I was watching Band of Brothers for the, I don't know, 30th time probably. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got up to Bastogne and I was like, this is it. I'll do a Bastogne list. And so I was looking through the Bastogne and the Battle of Bulge selectors. Um, and I found uh, a unit that is, I think, the one of the biggest sleepers, but obviously you can't take it because it's a theater selector-only unit. It's the Airborne Engineer Medium Machine Gun. 
and this is this is a disgusting piece of kit. It's 75 points because you have to take it veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, no, I think it might be. Uh, I think it's 10 points more than a normal veteran machine gun. So yeah, it might be 75 points, something like this. Uh, it's just a standard three-man MMG team. However, it starts the game dug in, in hardcover, uh, in ambush, and hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, because you can always take three for one with the US, you can take three of them. Three of them, yep. And so like a uh, very um, rational player, I took all three. Now, the the other side of this is that I really wanted to take rifle grenades and... Just because, again, doctrinally speaking for the U.S., rifle grenades were a big part of of their infantry combat. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to take basically what was a accurate paratrooper platoon for Battle of the Bulge slash Bastogne. You know, um, at that point, they went from two squads to three squads in a platoon. Their TO and E changed. Um, and they have an LMG in each platoon. The tactics better is represented with an mmg instead of an lmg mm-hmm. so i took three of them I took the took the airborne engineer variant and then just littered it with the usual support stuff that you'd expect in a platoon now when i submitted that to the to he accepted the uh airborne engineer mmg but he refused the rifle grenades on account of their an ask your opponent rule mm-hmm. um, and he kind of didn't want to get into that slippery slope and i was i was livid i was like 20 points for an indirect one inch is is absurd. Yeah, Nobody it's it's, it's it's like the what the VB launcher and the French list. It's yeah. not great. Yeah, it's. I think it's actually worse than the VB launcher because I don't think you can even use smoke out of it. But anyways, <laughs> I was like, this is this is absurd. I, I understand why he rejected it, but of course I wasn't going to be rational and an adult about it. Um, so I was like, fine. I went back to the list and I found one that lets me take two two mortars and a howitzer, plus the three uh, airborne and engineer MMGs. Took three paratrooper squads, which are stubborn. Um, I had one with three or four SMGs. The other ones had just rifles with one BAR each, so kind of a fire maneuver element. So the idea was, and I'm looking at this list, and I was like, I don't play like this. I took no vehicles. Oh, it also had two bazooka teams. No vehicles, no snipers, no transports either. Everybody was a foot slogger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, how in the world do I play this list, right? So obviously, if I've spent 225 points on medium machine gun teams, I have to use them. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, I'm looking at how, how do I use this? So like a, like a good platoon commander, I got the field manuals and I was looking through, reading through the chapters of how to use machine guns in a platoon and company level attack and defense. And, you know, it's all the usual stuff. You start with the machine guns and then when they get closer, you start with the, the infantry and stuff. So I'm thinking, okay... I have to use these like you would use a machine gun. So mm-hmm. a big part of my of my list or strategy was basically have these guys controlling three separate fields of fire that had a big overlap point because they're not necessarily going to kill stuff. It's still only five shots. Mm-hmm. But what they are going to do is they're going to put on pins pretty reliably. Oh, yeah. That you know they're not moving. They've got 36 inches of range, and if I start the game with them on an ambush, I can choose to only shoot at stuff when they're out in the open. So it should be fours most of the time. Five dice on fours, I'm going to get a pin. And so my plan was, basically, whenever they moved something that I didn't want to be useful, I just shot one to three MMGs at it straight away. Love it. The the other thing about it is. Um, is that a lot of people thought that they had to get rid of those MMGs. And that's that's something that 
um, I did actually point out to a few of my opponents, I was like, hey, you know, you could just ignore them. Mm -hmm. It's three guys dug in, hardcover veterans. Like, you're not going to kill them. You're going to be hitting them on sevens, killing them on fives. And even if you hit them with indirect, you're still only hitting one and a half guys because they dug in counters down all the time. That's right. And I'm sitting there like, you can just ignore them. It's only an MMG. Uh, and then the the flip side of this was that if I deployed them as close to the edge of my deployment zone as possible, hopefully within 12 inches of an objective, on the last turn, I could just pick them up and put them onto an objective. Yeah. And that meant I had basically three squads to hold middle ground to backline objectives. And keeping in mind, I had two uh, two mortars and a light howitzer. If I had a backfield objective, I could hold it with multiple units anyway. Yeah. Uh, and just sling indirect all day. So the the real tricky part of the list was everything was was fragile, except the paratrooper squads. I think it was seven or eight guys who were veteran and stubborn. So pretty mm -hmm. difficult to shift. Yeah. But seven or eight veterans, you, you land a template on them, they're dead. And oh, so yeah. a, big, <laughs> a big part of the strategy was just basically applying lots of fire, hitting things with mortars, which I did, had absolutely no business doing. Um, there was there was one game where, you know, my main weakness of the list is armored forces, even yeah. even a bunch of light tanks uh, or, or armored cars. Yeah, I've got two bazooka teams, but yes, if they hit, they will likely delete stuff, but moving, long range, cover, mm -hmm. all of the other stuff, getting them to actually hit stuff is pretty tricky. So there was one point where I had this, Panzer III M coming straight up the middle of a half track full of Sturm Pioneers. And I landed a mortar in the half track and I was like, Ooh, that was lucky. And then my immediate next activation was landing a mortar on the Panzer III. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, there goes that armored attack, which it shouldn't happen. Like it shouldn't yeah. happen like that. And that was, that was like both of my bazooka teams were at that at that point. And I was like, if this, if this goes through, it's, it's going to be a loss, but I managed to turn that around and then the, the luck of the dice were on my side for that game. So uh, very boringly, uh, a lot of this list and a lot of the strategy was was basically just historically inspired. Yeah, but I don't think that's boring because it works. <laughs> um, I mean, to be able to reach out and apply pins at 36 inches fairly reliably because you're throwing out lots of dice yeah. and all you got to do is hit ones and then you put the pin on. Um, particularly when you have things like transports like that half track mm. coming at you, you got to hit a couple times. The unit inside is going to have a couple pins as well. Yeah. yeah. They're going to have to deal with that. Meanwhile, it gives you the chance to, um, you know, if people are being aggressive with you, gives you a little bit more breathing room to redeploy and to apply the pressure where you want it. I like a big, it. A big part of it was also um, active defense in the sense that if he was, if my opponent was, moving forces at me to shoot at me, I would often just light them up with the MMG so they had a neg one to hit. Because the pin is applied after the activation. That's right. Because I knew all of my units were fragile, so I was like, I need to just apply as many pins as I can to force those activations and the other sort of thing. The The real trick is, I was, if I started them with ambush, I was starting with nine dice in the bag to my opponent's 12, because mm -hmm. it was a 12, 12 dice event. Um, and that that is kind of comfort zone for me because when I started playing, um, I used to play all veteran lists, so I'm used to having a dice disadvantage. So the it was it was one of those weird things where the only thing I needed to to worry about was how fragile my units were because that was new to me. The rest of it I was I was it was kind of in my comfort zone, and and I think it was it was a combination of of 
ease of schedule. I had a, a couple of less experienced opponents throughout the day. Um, and knowing exactly how it works, being familiar with, with yeah. my opponents, a lot of it was, was, was Germans. I think it was two out of three games against Germans. And so it was, it was a lot of things that, that made that work. Would I encourage people to spend 225 points of veteran airborne MMGs? No. To, to win? No. But no. definitely try it. If you've if you're if you're in there to to see what these guys can do, mm-hmm. definitely take I think it's a the Battle of Bold Selector. Take yeah. take the three of them and and have a grand old time and lose friends. Just just lose friends in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Look, ha- Hidden and being dug in is so valuable uh, as a Japanese player. Let me tell you, I love those rules, uh, <laughs> but it, they can be frustrating to face. I definitely yeah. know that as well. I, again, for those who haven't heard me say this before, I, I do like a medium machine gun. Yes. I know there are better things, quote unquote, you could get for your points. Yes, I admit they're not necessarily the point-efficient thing. But if you're being forced to play one platoon or if you don't have the points to pay the tax to get to a second platoon, and again, we'll talk about lieutenants in a second, I rate rate, uh, a machine gun team in that it's three bodies with five shots, and I just look at it like a rifle squad with a longer range that I'm going to keep in one place, and if I have to run out to grab an objective later, I can. Now, yes, they are sniper bait. It, it yeah. also, you need to be clever about how you are using them. But I have run a medium machine gun in almost all of my uh, event armies, um, ones when I was playing competitively and ones where I haven't been. And when I run them and there is that situation with the sniper, I'm not afraid to put them behind something mm-hmm. within a 12-inch run range to an objective and just sitting them there. They are, it's a 50 point unit that at the end of the game, I will run out and grab an objective. And the only thing that I know I need to do before then, between what's happening at the beginning of the game and that last turn when I'm running to grab that objective is having to deal with that sniper somehow. And even then, the sniper's got a hit and it's got a wound. So yeah, they'll probably hit, but they don't always reliably wound. And in games where I haven't been able to deal with that sniper, where but where the machine guns run out and grab the objective at the end of the game, you know, you, you just say YOLO and go for it. <laughs> and, you know, bolt action still happens, and sometimes they survive and sometimes they yeah. don't. Uh, but, think... you're, but in doing so, you're forcing your opponent to make that decision. And often when that's happening, there are other crucial parts in the game. If the game is that tight that I would almost rather them shoot at my medium machine yeah. gun team than something else that is perhaps more crucial to my game plan, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you've, you've touched on something really interesting there, which is, uh, of course, snipers, but also how to, how to I guess, think about them and, and behave around them. Uh, a lot of people think snipers are really good at killing team weapons. And don't get me wrong, they are. I was going to say they we, are, yeah. But if we assume that every team weapon that you're targeting is regular, just for the sake of some math, there's a they hit two out of three times. That's what a three plus is. Mm-hmm. It's a 66% chance. And regular will wound on a four plus, so they'll wound half the time they hit. Which means that when your sniper fires at a regular team, uh, there's there's a 33% chance he's going to kill it. Which means a one in three chance he'll actually kill it. And so, in in that context, you know, once you do the hit and the wound and the conversions and stuff, in that context, snipers aren't that scary, especially if you've got 
if you've got a mortar team that he can hit, uh, or, or you know, a flamethrower team, bazooka team, or other team weapons, and he's targeting your MMG, be my guest. Uh, <laughs> and I knew that in in my list, snipers were going to be my bane. But again, I've got two mortars and a light howitzer. I can mm-hmm. I can very comfortably just leave one of them indirecting on that sniper team until he's either dead or has moved, and then we'll start the dance again. Knowing that there's a, in this case with veterans, it's actually less than a one in three chance of him killing. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that if he's sitting there shooting my sniper teams, it's a one in three chance. I was like, be my guest. If you want to do that for six turns, you will kill two of them across the entire game. And I still have a third one. Mm-hmm. And you've spent all game shooting my MMG teams. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's, like I've actually moved away from the idea that sniper teams are an auto include. Um, another thing that we see with MMG teams locally is there's a local player who plays Axis who's an absolute gun of a player. He's a big fan of taking inexperienced German MMGs. Love it. Love it. It's 35 points, six shots. You're typically hitting on a one in six anyway. Mm-hmm. You're going to apply a pin. <laughs> yeah. He likes to use them as bait units, though. He'll run them forward so you take out the unit, and then yeah. he'll move in with something more dangerous and reply. Yes, and especially if you're going to use them for the old. If they're inexperienced, you yeah. can't. then you really don't mind if they're behind a wall for half the game, going, don't care, can't see me. <laughs> and then, it, you know, yeah. you run them out. Sure, at that point, they're more vulnerable to the shooting of your enemy, but, you know, it's not like you paid tons for them. Yeah, and it's like one it. more thing your opponent has to deal with. Yeah, exactly, right? One more thing to think about, which if you force someone to think about a lot, I mean, bolt action is a mentally taxing game. And especially if you're playing in an event of some kind, once you get past the first game, particularly <laughs> in game three or game five and six, depending on which day you're playing, people will make mistakes just because yeah. they are tired. And if you give them lots of choices, it, it's not even making them quote, make a quote unquote mistake. Just Correct. making someone think about something can work in your favor a lot of the time. Just give them too many choices to properly deal with so that they may go off in a direction you don't expect. Yeah, exactly. If you've or got that you want them to go, I should say, not un- that you don't expect, <laughs> they don't expect and you want yeah. them to. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're somebody who's really good at making decisions and you've got an 80% correct decision-making rate, if you then force that player to make an extra 15, 20 decisions across the game, yeah, their failure rate might not change, but they've still failed more decisions yeah. uh, if you want to look at it as a, as a binary thing. So that's that's the big thing that I play is, is target saturation and just forcing my opponent to make lots of decisions. Because every now and again, you'll come against a player who makes all the right ones and, oh, well. You, you live and you learn, but mm-hmm. most of the time, and, and I don't exclude myself from this either. When I'm forced to make a lot of decisions, I know some of them are going to be wrong or, you know, you're facing the situation. It's like, I don't want to do any one of these things, but mm-hmm. I have to do one of them. Exactly. Well, you brought up something a minute ago and I want to come back around to it. Um, you were talking about the durability of American paratroopers. Now we've talked a lot about paratroopers on this show in different episodes, but given how popular Band of Brothers is, um, <laughs> and given Saving Private Ryan and assorted other American-centric shows, like one of the big romantic units in this game are American paratroopers. And there are lots of different additional entries from lots of different theater and yeah. campaign books over the years, uh, but they are, rules-wise, pretty damn good. 
A, because they are veteran. And we know in this game, of course, veteran means that it just increases your chance of survival. It increases your leadership. And yeah, it, it it's just, it is very forgiving. Again, yeah. going back to what we were talking about with the, the national rules. But the addition of stubborn really adds to that. Because all of a sudden, if you do get smashed and half your squad gets taken away and they have a couple of pins on them, all of a sudden you're testing as though they don't have those pins. And yeah. that really does take away some of the core ways that people deal with squads in this game is hoping that, oh, you failed your test. Okay, goodbye. Yeah, um, forcing the morale check. Yeah, exactly. Forcing morale check is one of my favorite things to do in this game. And yeah. when I play against Lee Avery's British paratroopers, I basically spend half the game chewing on my side of the table <laughs> uh, in frustration because he just doesn't give a crap because I, I like to play a pin game. I like to throw out yeah, the pins, yeah. both to force my opponents to be less capable shots, to make my own troops more survivable. And at the, I think that largely has to do with the fact that I largely play regular armies, but then yeah. also to apply those pins that once I knock them down to half size, you go, oh, sorry, buddy, now take a pin, check <laughs> in minus three or minus four, and there's a good chance they're going to disappear. And it means you don't have to knock people down to the last man, which can be very frustrating. The paratroopers just generally don't care, though. Um, <laughs> and that is wonderful when you're playing them. Well, has that been your experience as well? I know you do tend to take big squads of regular U.S. troops, but in your describing your list, you were talking about bringing squads down to a size of seven or eight. Now, that is because they are veteran and because they're paratroopers? Uh, so the, there's a there's a couple of things there. I'm actually quite new to the church of paratroopers um, and stubborn. For a long time, I didn't think that stubborn was worth the points. Um, so I'm a recent convert. Okay. Uh, normally, I take big squads of at least eight veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, and previously, I used to take marine squads because you got three BARs. You could stack three or four SMGs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think with 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 pistols, SMGs, and shotguns, you can give everybody tough fighters. Uh, and so you can, and I think now in the recent FAQ, you can actually just buy the tough fighter one per point, I think. Yes, but, you can. Yeah, and so I got, I got, I think I got the stubborn wrong last time I looked at them. But yeah, and so I've always just taken Marines just because on paper, I thought they were the better choice. Mm -hmm. Having now played, and sorry, before that, I used to play Ranger Spam. So I would take the squads of 10 and I'd take four of them, all veteran. Uh, just because deployment is one of my weaknesses for a long time. And so getting the free movement is um, is really good at the start of the game to kind of, as a crutch, as I got better at deployment. But now now having played squads of seven, I think it, I think they might have been eight, veteran paratroopers that are stubborn. I'm a, I'm a convert, man. Take, take veteran stubborn any day of the week. Mm -hmm. What I would probably do in future now if I'm out there to win is that I used to take, all of my infantry squads used to be the same. Um, that I'm happy to admit that, that was a crutch. A part of it was a crutch. A part of it was playstyle, in the sense that if I got a unit in the wrong spot, again deployment being my weakness, I would have, um, a, you know, if if my if one of my units is in the wrong spot, it didn't matter because they were all the same. Right. That being said, now that I've gotten a bit more comfortable, and I would generally give this advice to everybody: have a special purpose for each one of your squads. And going future, I would probably take regular Marines 
with BARs as kind of base of fire squads mm -hmm. and objective holders. And then I would take veteran paratroopers with SMGs for my assaulting units because they're going to cop a lot of fire. And yeah, they're going to stack pins on them and all the other sorts of stuff. But hey, good luck getting rid of all of them. And even even three or four SMGs in your face is is not a pleasant experience. No, exactly right. But if you're going to have can uh, have that uh, reliability of having everyone having a, every army in your squad tooled out to be you know, sort of jack of all trades. If you're going to have the Marine squad with three bars, three submachine guns, three pistols, and that is what, how all of your squads are equipped. Ouch. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to have the tough fighter on almost everyone. Yeah. Uh, especially, and you start plinking dudes off as they get closer. You pull the units that don't have, pistols and don't have smgs um because the closer you get of course you want the the, the close combat assault yeah, rules yeah. the pistols give you and you want the additional shots and the tough fighter that the submachine give submachine gun gives you and of course the cheap cheerful way of doing that is to give bars the pistols so uh you have riflemen that you can be pulling off that normally as you advance you get to put your shots out at range um but then you know as you get closer you get rid of them so you still have the tough fighter but man, that's not a lot of points because as we've said in previous podcasts, it's what, nine points for the submachine guns, 15 points for the bars, three points for the pistols. So, I mean, what, 15, 24 points, yeah, which is yeah. just more than the cost of one LMG. <laughs> You're getting three bars, three SMGs, and three pistols. It's having i'm painting marines right now and <laughs> let me tell you i forgot how good that was until i started painting them and i flipped open the book and looked at the points and went oh my god that's wretched anything else I, any other uh, unit slash army in the game i agree with you i like to have squads for particular purposes yeah marines on the other hand yeah forget about it it's just like <laughs> why not just do it all the time and I think that's that's the key thing about um, this is where I think the strength of or sorry, the weaknesses of the U.S. Uh, faction really start showing through. It's very difficult to completely tool out one squad for one purpose. Uh, you can't get lots of squads that can. I don't think you can actually get one squad that can have all SMGs. I think you're limited about three or four. Even your engineer squads, you're limited to, I think, two SMGs and a flamer. And all of these sorts of things, it's really difficult for you to actually have one squad that is um, to the nth degree capable at one task. And I think that's kind of the weakness of, of the U.S. faction. Uh, and, and you don't get a lot of sort of spice in that regard as well. The, the the loadout that you're talking about with SMGs and BERs for Marines, I love it because typically squads will have, you know, bolt action is basically two range bands. You've got 12 to 24 and 0 to 12. And squads are usually lethal from 12 to 24 or they're lethal at 0 to 12. So either SMGs or rifles or LMGs or something like this. Right. The great thing about those Marine squads, as you rightly pointed out, Americans, you want to be advancing. You want to be taking objectives. You want to be dictating tempo. And this weird thing happens is that your squads get more lethal the closer you get. Mm -hmm. And it's not like you start at low lethality with Marines either. And so you've got this beautiful system where, you know, you're dishing out, you know, six or eight shots at range. You, you tick over that 12 inch and now you've suddenly got 12 or 20 shots. 
and and yeah, they, they start taking out guys. Yeah, yeah, I lose a rifleman, I lose a BAR. I'm still getting closer. I've still got veterans. I've still got mm-hmm. tough fighters. I'm still coming for you. And so that's a really satisfying way to play Marines. It's just be like, no, I'm you're on my clock, and I'm walking forward, and this is going to be my board in a few minutes. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Now, I do want to talk about something you just said, because I've heard you say this on your show, and it was actually in my notes for our discussion. And it is, I think the U.S. have, I don't necessarily think they have the dearth of uh, selection uh, that you are indicating. And I, I, I don't want to get into a fist fight here, but... Um, how, how dare you have a different opinion? Bro. I know, right? <laughs> Such a bad person. I mean, clearly, if we're running book standard, yes, I totally yeah. agree with you. Because I think the most SMGs you can get in a squad is three. Yeah. Uh, however, you, and that's with, I think, a, a paratrooper squad. Yeah, paratrooper squad, glider squad, and rangers can all take three SMGs. But once you start taking a look at, I think, the additional entries that are in uh, some of the other campaign books, you can take paratrooper squads with up to five SMGs. Yeah. Um, and once you start adding things like BARs or LMGs with SMGs, sure, you're not getting nine SMGs, <laughs> but the way that you run Americans, I would run American squads... And I actually do have two boxes of Warlords Winter U.S. Paratroopers. Oh, lovely. Right? Beautiful models. The newer sculpts. Really Ooh, nice. Yeah. I just haven't painted them yet, but I have them to go with my Battle of the Bulge Great Coat Army. In that, so then I can take a couple of squads that have five SMGs in them to, yeah. to, give, to have a couple of those squads with more teeth for when Melbourne starts having, quote-unquote, more competitive events again. <laughs> but... Uh, because if again they were they were there they um, battle of Bastogne again they were doing the best they could as far as ammunition went yeah, but yeah. it was a lot of ugly fighting and you would want some squads like that now with that I don't think I'd ever want a U.S. Army with all SMGs especially given the fire maneuver rule yeah I would want maybe four or five SMGs in an eight man squad. And then have three or four dudes with rifles specifically so I can move as I'm moving forward. I can throw out some pins. Um, I played Garrett, a very talented local player, uh, a couple months ago in uh, in an event. And he ran an all SMG uh, German pioneer company. Yeah, (laughs) well. And he was really frustrated because I was playing fins and I refused to move up to the point where I would be sitting in his face and have him assault me Yeah, because that was just, that was just not going to happen. And so I just stayed at distance and plinked models off um, because I knew that if I got close, I would get slaughtered. Now he did have some vehicles that had long range firepower and they they were absolutely chewing through my stuff. But just just to have his squads not be able to fire back at me reminded me of the fact that you really don't want to go all in on assault weapons sometimes because yeah. you want to yeah. be able to at least throw out a couple of shots to get those pins, the U.S. in particular, because you get the better consistency of hitting with rifles, particularly yeah. on the move, if you want to try and get close with those squads. So I would have, I don't think you ever need more than four or five SMGs in a U.S. squad, 
yeah, if that makes agree. sense. Yeah. Um, am yeah. I am I speaking sense here, or is this just? No, no, I would I would absolutely agree. I okay. think it's um, it was just more so that that if you wanted to have three or four specialized squads, each one with a different purpose, yeah, exactly. you won't you won't get the same um, peaks and troughs in your power curve as you would with another army say for example true like you can't you can't take a squad of uh stone pioneers with you know uh, a stone pistol a flamethrower and 10 veteran guys you just don't have that option for us so your close combat squads uh, pound for pound are going to be lacking but what you make up for is is that versatility and that redundancy and i think that's if you if you try to play um full specialized with us you just have to be mindful that that you can't trade at the same level and you kind of have to lean on the weaknesses more. And more, more to the point is try to avoid playing hyper-specialized squads with the US because it's it doesn't kind of work right. um, as well as it does for other nations. I'd agree. I totally agree. Now, I do want to circle back because you did say you really like lieutenants. So th- this is more so of like a single platoon meta, I think. Um you are forced to take a lieutenant, which is, I think, where the tax comes from. If you're doing a multi-platoon, I can sort of see the tax perspective a bit more. But I'm going to call out bolt-action players and say, if you think your lieutenant is a tax, you're probably not using them very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and the reason I say that is because the main benefit of your lieutenant is not the uh, snap two. That's really useful, don't get me wrong. In the right in the right circumstances at the right time, it can be quite powerful. But the main thing about them is the the morale bubble of yes. giving a plus one morale to everybody around them. And the second thing is is a pin. Now, I don't typically take my officers with SMGs. I typically take them with rifles. I typically take first lieutenants as well. And the reason I do that is because if you use a snap two with a second lieutenant, you're wasting one dice because you're usually your lieutenant's not really going to be the kicker that you need to activate. It's the other squad. Mm-hmm. And so snap twoing with a second lieutenant is just pulling more dice out of the bag than you needed to. Uh, the first lieutenant, however, you get two units. And that makes a big difference. It does. Uh, and so that's where that really comes in. The plus two morale is also incredible. Oh I my think. God, is it ever. <laughs> so yeah. good. Yeah, because remember, as we said, a, a seven on a 2d6 is about 50%. It's not quite, but it's about 50%. And so if you've got a veteran unit with two pins and you try to activate them, there's a 50% chance you're not going to activate them. But with the first lieutenant there, there's now like an 80 or 90% chance you're going to activate them. Yeah. Uh, and so that's that's why getting seven to eight or seven to nine is such a big difference. And then if you've also got, if you're not everybody's veteran, if you've got some regular units, Bumping them up past their original morale when they've got one pin on them, huge boon. Uh, and so these are, that's why I think the the first lieutenants are really key to assaulting. Or And I don't necessarily mean close combat, I just mean seizing and taking ground oh, from your opponent. So it's this, because you have to play mobile, because you want to keep your guys moving as often you can, particularly in objective games, having your first lieutenant in the right place at the right time can make all the difference. And... The, the reason I take rifles is because the moment I shoot somebody with an SMG, I'm telling him that my lieutenant is in charge range. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. No, you really don't want to do that. <laughs> and so so what I'm doing with that is, is I'm, I'm able to dish out a pin, particularly on something like a Snap 2. You can dish out a long-range pin, activate a couple of units. Uh, you know, if you're at 18 inches, that with the Americans becomes 12, and you ignore the Negawanda pin as you move and fire. It's a, it's a beautiful little 
little uh, ballet that you can perform with your first lieutenant. But it requires, I don't know if planning was the right word, but it requires this kind of like multifactorial thinking where you're not just thinking about what this unit you can do. You're thinking about what it can do in the context of your list and the game. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time playing Germans over version two and they automatically get the second unit for snapping. And so, yeah, again, snapping can be super beneficial because you can create little situations where you create a little fire base with a couple of units and you're able to just guarantee that no one's going to step into the middle of what you're trying to do there. So you can clearly get two to three pins out on a unit. You can really punish it before they're able to come up and support that unit with other units or whatever else. Or if it's the old truck driving up filled with shenanigans yeah. <laughs> and then you're able to snap two with lieutenant, put three pins on that truck. All of a sudden, everything in that truck has three pins too. Yeah. Then they have, and then that stalls that advance. I find that to be super valuable. Even if you only have the ability to snap one other unit, that is, in my opinion, the best use of snap in the game. When you are able to put two pins on a transport and put two pins inside, even if they pass their test and they jump out to shoot you, they're still going to be minus one to hit. And that yeah, that's is true. worth its weight in gold, in, in my opinion. <laughs> The, the, we, we can we can agree to differ on that one. I'm I'm happy with that. the The main trick that I like with with my officers is that if I if I think I've got a good chance of of shooting a unit and getting them down to fifty percent mm-hmm. with a squad, I'll activate my officer, give them an extra pin, and then I'll yeah. I'll force the morale check. Exactly. And as we talked about on the with the bell curve enough, that that extra one can make all the difference in the world. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And as you know, as I said before, I'm the kind of player that likes death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> and that is the paper cut to start the the bleeding. And then you just go in for the kill with the lemon juice. Um, yeah, man, to get that unit to go. Yeah. Um, I, I played against a plus two leadership lieutenant recently. And I'll admit, I hadn't done it in a long time. Most of the people I played against have been taking second lieutenants. Yeah. And man... You know, my my strategy of death by a thousand paper cuts, all of a sudden people were doing things when I was thinking, okay, they have enough pins. There's a good chance they're going to go down this turn. And all of a sudden they weren't and was like, oh, why? Um, Particularly things were assaulting me that I thought weren't able to. Um, yeah. You know, you, yeah. you focus fire in, you put a bunch of pins on them and say, OK, now assault me, dude. Um, <laughs> and more often than that, you're going to go down and then I'm going to punish you next turn because you're going to be sitting there with a bunch of pins. And even if you rally, good for you. You're still there and you're not down. So I'm yeah. going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. kick you in the ding ding for being there. But man, that plus two. Whew, yeah, it I can actually, be crucial. Actually, um as I said, when I first started playing, I played a lot with air observers mm-hmm. and it really just made the rookie pilot thing not feel so bad. Cause yeah, everything like copped a couple of pins uh, in my line, but it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, whatever my first Lieutenant will, will patch him up and keep him moving forward. I'm actually this, the team event that I'm running. Um, I took a page out of your book and I went with, with a weird points limit. I went with 820. Yes. Uh, it was 80, 80 second airborne all the way. Yeah, baby. Um, and, and I gave one victory point out for every match if you include a captain or higher and i also uh changed the mandatory lieutenant requirement to also be a captain instead and so i really just want to see people be like hey 12 inch plus three bubble feels really good Mm -hmm. maybe first lieutenants and officers aren't that bad oh man it changes the game something fierce yeah 
So it, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. If it, if you know, they ever changed it so that you get rid of the lieutenant necessarily requirement and they just made it, you get to take an officer. Yeah. Oh, I, it I'm is, definitely going to be playing with some officers. Yeah. Um, and I know it's, uh, you know, you can take the, the cheapest chips lieutenant just to get, <laughs> uh, you know, something else in there. But I haven't done it yet. And just the idea of being able to, as you say, have that 12-inch bubble and have the plus two, uh, sorry, plus three. Woo! Woo! <laughs> yeah. Get it's, excited. Um, it, it's actually... myself over here. <laughs> it's in the guidelines. Uh, just before, in the fourth selection of the rulebook, it says um, you can choose to take a captain instead of a lieutenant but it's not it's not an official rule no it's not uh, and so i actually took a um uh, i think it was at start of 2020 maybe 2021 there was um there was another event that was held here and i took a another historically accurate paratrooper platoon but for normandy um and so I only had sort of two squads uh, and it was it was brutal i tell you what but uh the the um, platoon structure at the time in 4044 had a second and a first lieutenant in every platoon. You can't do that in one platoon. So I took a, a second, a first lieutenant and a captain in a, in a 1250-point list. And having, having both of them on the board at once, I tell you what, my army was, was moving where I wanted, whenever I wanted yeah, on my care. clock. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> well, having run two my fin list with two lieutenants the other uh well a couple of months ago with my fins uh, mm. just being able to you know move them strategically where i needed to uh to help get rid of pins particularly on my unreliable t28s oh yeah was 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 just wonderful it was just wonderful particularly with rally rolls it was just coming oh, up yeah. i'm gonna stand yeah, next yeah. to you i'm gonna get a plus one to my rally i'm gonna rally on my base morale awesome no problem. I just got rid of six pins. Yay. Just made it that little bit more consistent. Now, I do want to point something out because I've seen this, people talking about this, and I'm not a big Facebook lurker um, okay. on bolt action events, but I've seen people asking this a lot recently. And I do think that if people are listening to this and they're interested in Americans, it is probably worth drawing an underline that in the basic Armies of American book, if you go to page 33, under the recoilless artillery section, <laughs> there is an entry called the rocket launcher, and it is a multi-launcher. It is yeah. the Nebelwerfer for Americans. Yeah. A lot of people seem to forget that exists in this book. Yeah. Um, I just thought I would point that out because a bunch of people said, what campaign book do I need to buy to get a multi-launcher for Americans? It's in the actual <laughs> armies of list. Um, it's just not in a section that's labeled as rocket launcher. I mean, it literally is, but it's under recoilless <laughs> rifle. So I just thought I would draw a little underline under that. If it, I think what it really comes down to is if they're anything like me, they see uh, they see my boys, the recoilless rifles, just absolutely butchered by the rules in this book, mm -hmm. and they just stop reading that section. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, I, they should be long range bazookas is what they should be um but yeah uh, we're not here to to list my gripes about which units are in which slots <laughs> <laughs> well gorshin we started talking a little bit about maybe how do i say this maybe some of the downsides of playing americans <laughs> because clearly they they can be very forgiving and they have some wonderful units 
But one of my big downsides for this list is I feel like there's not a lot of variety in it. And I think that's partially because they don't have a million entries in the infantry section. That said, their infantry, all because they're using the American rules, are very consistent in what they do. They are a little cut and pasty um, as far as what gear they have. And as you say, there aren't any dedicated submachine gun squads, not like the Soviet book where you have like 52 squads that can take all nothing but SMGs. <laughs> but let's maybe get into some of the vehicles because I know that some people have said that part of the not great variety for the American list are the vehicles. And there are certain vehicles that you see all the time in American lists yeah. and other vehicles that you don't see at all. And clearly everyone knows how good the 105 millimeter Sherman is. It is very points efficient because when version one was written, which is when this, this book was pointed, howitzers were cheaper than AT guns. And so yeah. I think that is the cheapest Sherman, and yeah. it does work. It is a medium tank with a medium howitzer um, with machine guns that you can add to it and that it has already built in. It's it's a damn good vehicle, and you can understand, especially if you put gyro stabilizers on it, make it veteran, it's brutal. Yeah. But there's a lot of other things in here. I mean, everyone knows, obviously, the machine gun Sherman you know, golf slow clap. Good for you. You found it. <laughs> the um, machine gun Stewart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, pff, yay. Who cares? <laughs> um, and those are kind of the the vehicles that you see over and over again. Now, in version one, not to steal your thunder on the next question here, <laughs> we saw a lot of chaffies because Recky was better then. But right. I haven't seen a lot of chaffies recently. Gorshin, you really like a Chaffee. Do you want to talk to us about this? Because I was about to ask you, what are some units that you think exist in this book that you don't necessarily see on the tabletop that you rate as a quiet hit that you think people might want to try out? So, yeah, you, you're 100% right that the armies of U.S. can be accurately summarized as 50 shades of olive drab. As somebody who has started uh, scale modeling about a year ago, I'm actually quite an appreciator of olive drab and all of its mm -hmm. different colors, but I get that not everybody is. And I think a big part of the sameness of the the units is what makes me dig into historical stuff and try to play historical lists rather than, and try to win with them rather than just kind of go, what's the most effective stuff? Yeah. Yes, I'm a huge fan of the M24 Chaffee. I I actually don't know why it's a bit of a sleeper coming from V1 to V2. I suspect that there is a bit of like a demographic shift in V1, V2. Mm -hmm. I know we're seeing it now locally in Perth that, that v V1 players are starting to come back. But I'd say probably about half to maybe two thirds of our current player base is, is new to V2, myself included. The I think the thing about the Chaffee is that it's vulnerable. I think that's why a lot of people stay away from it because that means it's side armor is six plus against heavy weapons instead of seven. That's yeah. pretty pathetic to be honest, but it has recce. And it, you know, if you are copying a hit on your side armor, that's more so a player mistake than it is 
um, a weakness of the Chaffee. Now, it's not to say that sometimes you have bad luck and a few other things happen, but more often than not, you just have to play quite smart with a Chaffee. And I think that's why it's it's kind of slept on. As we've said, the rest of the, the book is very much, um, it's quite forgiving, as we've talked about. The, the U.S. in general is very forgiving mm-hmm. in terms of units and, and national special rules. And the Chaffee is not. And so when you particularly when you go for something like Sherman, which is hilariously forgiving with its two inch HE medium anti tank gun, mm-hmm. it's a medium tank. You pay 10 points to cancel out any of its weaknesses. Um, again, very forgiving if you take veteran gyro stabilized even more so. And then you take something like a Chaffee, which is none of those things with the exception of gyro stabilized if you take a veteran. Um, it's yeah, it's a very different play style. And I think because of that, they try it for one or two games. Um, it get dumpsted pretty quickly, and then they go, "Oh, it's a it's a bad vehicle." It's like, well, it's an extremely well costed vehicle, but you have to play smart to to use it well. See, I look at it and I just see efficiency. Exactly. I see. Sure, it's a light tank, so it's armor eight. Sure, it's vulnerable, but my God, you still have the HE American rule. So it's that, still a medium anti-tank gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's still a medium anti-tank gun that hits with the D6 HE. Yeah. So that is pretty damn good for 150 points regular. Not to mention you have the coax MMG and the hull yeah. mounted MMG. Yeah. So you can rock it as a as the dual MMG tank if you need to. And you can give it the uh, pintle mounted HMG for 25 points if you want as well. Now, of course, that makes you open topped with a light vehicle. Obviously, yeah, you're yeah. not going to want to do that early in the turn. But if you're using a Pintle anyway, you're probably yeah. going to be using it at the end of the turn. Especially with a recce vehicle. Exactly, right? And because you can move it up to, you know, you can have it behind a hill. And then at the end of the turn, you can come up over the top of the hill, fire three weapon systems. And that HMG is wonderful at putting pins slash penetrating soft skins because it's got the yeah. plus one pin. So you can fire three pins in three separate directions. And then at the beginning of the next turn, once it resets and it's closed topped again, someone goes to shoot you. You can recce back behind the hill. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful piece of kit for exactly that reason. Uh, and, and even once you add, add the recce and the HMG, I think it still only clocks in at about 185 points, which is, is cheaper. Yep which is cheaper than a baseline Sherman. And I think it's about the same cost as the howitzer Sherman for a little bit more versatility uh, and arguably survivability because recce can make you invulnerable for the shot. So, it, it, you know, it's, it is a, a sleeper vehicle that in the right hands can be an absolute menace. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to be fair, the 105 um, easily catch fire, vulnerable sides Sherman is 175. Yeah. It's 10 points cheaper, but everyone usually takes the 195 version because it doesn't have the yeah. catch fire or the vulnerable sides. Um, man, I I think that that tank is great to the yeah. point where I've never taken one because I think it's too good. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're cut sense. from we're cut from different cloth, Brad. We had a we had an event where armored platoons were open as well, and I took three chaffies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in version one, you would have been that guy. But also, um, recce has changed. It is not okay. the same rule, particularly since it's been FAQ'd a few times now. Yeah. Um, to the point where I honestly don't know if I'm playing recce right. So, because I'm afraid, it's like that meme 
I don't yeah. know what's going on and I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> I actually don't run recce vehicles anymore because right. I'm afraid to look it up. Um, <laughs> and I am kind of kidding when I say that, kids. I'm not completely serious, but I actually couldn't tell you how recce works if you ask me right now. So don't ask me, please. Honestly, if it if you asked me right now, I'd be like, let me go get my rule book and the FAQ and just double check, yeah. make sure I've understood it correctly. It, it, the FAQ is the document that I would going straight for uh, and then go back to said rule book. But Let's talk about maybe a few of the other options in this book, uh, particularly in the vehicle options, because one of the things about bolt action is a rifleman's a rifleman's a rifleman, and small teams are always the yeah. same across all the nations. Yeah, we've talked about some of those being particularly good given the national rules for the U.S. I want to talk about a vehicle that I think is criminally underrated, and I ran this vehicle uh, in my uh, Sikh army, my British Indian mm. list, that was made up of Indian carriers and I backed it up with an M3 Lee. <laughs> and I don't know why people aren't talking about this more. Let's let's look at my buddy the M3 Lee. Now, f- at the base level, it's 220 points. You have the hull mounted medium AT gun that has the HE rule. So it's D6 yeah. HE. You have, um, and that is covering the front and right arcs, which is weird. Um, you have a gyro-stabilized, turret-mounted, and by the way, the other th- the medium AT gun is gyro-stabilized as well if you made it veteran. You have the gyro-stabilized turret light AT gun with a coax MMG, and then you have a, a Kapula turret-mounted MMG. It's got two turrets, kids. <laughs> it, it, it basically rocks two medium machine guns, and two AT guns, one of which fires HE. And all four of them can shoot at the same time, right? Oh, yeah. And all four <laughs> of them. Uh, no, no, no. Actually, to be fair, the the one with the AT gun, the light AT gun. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. What makes this vehicle wonderful is that it is a it is the definition of a pin sprinkler. You, <laughs> you can fire one medium machine gun one way. You can fire the light AT gun at something else. And you can fire the hull mounted AT gun in another direction and all you have to do is point the hull <laughs> where the gun wants the big gun wants to go and everything else is a turret and it yeah it's wonderful now it is 220 points regular which compared to a lot of medium tanks in the game is pretty damn good now yeah. it does have as i said the he rule which is amazing but it does easily catch fire uh, which means that if it catches fire, it takes an additional D3 pins rather than just one before the morale test, which is bad if you catch fire. But Very bad. Whenever I've run this vehicle, I have never had to take an on-fire test. And I know that might be lucky for me, but on the damage result table, it's one out of six results, whereas yeah. four out of six of those is that it's going to die. I know that 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 math changes once it's a glancing hit. Yes, you there's a chance that you're gonna be on fire there. I I honestly don't care. Um, if that happens, oh well, I die. I'm willing to take that risk on this tank, and it's vulnerable, so it is plus one to penetrate on the sides and rear. Now you can cancel that out by taking the next version up, uh, which is twenty points more for a regular but again it easily catches fire 
And it's... you can, again, go up for 10 points more than that, and that gets rid of easily catches fire. Now, I do want to point out one of those awesome bolt-action inconsistencies here. All three of these have gyro-stabilized guns. None of them have the option to take veteran. <laughs> I was wondering if that was a um, a callback to V1 about gyro-stabilized. I was wondering if you could actually talk about that, but it seems to be that's nope. not the case. Nope. That said, the M3A5 Lee, which is the expensive one. Yeah. It is 200. Actually, it's not that expensive. It's cheaper than the A3. It's 230 it's points. Yeah. But you can take that one veteran for almost 300 points. And that has the vulnerable rule, but not the catches on fire rule. But you can take it. And that is where I always kind of think, ah, is it worth taking veteran for gyro stabilizers for one shot? But this is the tank where I'd go. Oh, but it's two, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think you're actually paying for it in the in the cost. I think they actually cost more because of that. But I always run them as regular. I love this yeah. tank. Uh, I used it as a bully in my Indian army, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I've always wanted to take an army with two. I think um, you're forgetting the single most important thing about the Lee and, and the Grant, by extension. That is that it's ugly? Is ugly as sin. Oh, my God. So good. <laughs> I, I hate this tank. And this is coming from somebody who likes the Mech Warrior aesthetic. So, like, hull-mounted, janky, riveted-looking mm -hmm. vehicles should be my jam. And I look at the M3 Lee, and I'm like, it just makes me want to vomit. I think it's <laughs> such an ugly tank. <laughs> I love that this bothers you. I'm like, nah, man, just give me that ugliness. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, an interesting point about vulnerable or thin sides, by extension, and easily catches fire I never pay the points to get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's worth it. It's one of those things where it changes your play style a little bit, but as a as a general rule of thumb, pointing your side armor at stuff is a really bad idea anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you have something that reminds you that it's a really bad idea, then perfect. Yeah, Power exactly. to you. The game's teaching you how to be an armor commander, and that's a win as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Well the the Lee has another big downside. It is note. It was called the Iron Cathedral uh, by some tank crews because it was ten feet tall in reality. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculously tall. Which your chaffee doesn't have the same problem. Oh, it's a um, tiny tank. Yeah, and the problem with it is its big gun is so low in the hull that yeah. even if you're trying to hide it on the tabletop, the only way to get fifty percent cover on that thing. Is it to put it like halfway behind a building or something? But even yeah. then, you're usually blocking that big gun. So like it's like you're poking your little turrets up over something if you want to get cover on it. So that is a vehicle that you're going to get shot at. There is no hiding. Um, and that, is, that feels bad at times. Then again, the other thing that should be said about the Chaffee and the Hellcat by extension, because they're very yeah, yeah. similar uh, as far as... Uh, silhouette goes they're very low to the ground and yeah. so you're able to creep them up to walls you get your 50 percent hard cover sorry not you know yeah yeah from I'm people you, yeah. shooting at you and man that just increases the durability which is why the thing i was going to bring up is the hellcat because yeah. i love the hellcat i never take recce on the damn thing and i definitely should uh, but because it's open topped i 
always take the heavy machine gun on it. So though it's 155 points, it's five more than the Chaffee, I yeah. always take the heavy machine gun on top, making it, what, 180? It is an open-topped uh, seven-plus armor carrier. But because the model of this thing is fairly low to the ground, yeah. it's not Hetzer low, but no. <laughs> it's getting close. So you can, if you deploy it sensibly, you can always get, or almost always get, light or heavy cover depending on the table you're playing on and that just increases its survivability exponentially just making it harder to shoot in this game is so big um and having such a big gun on this thing it's yeah i love a hellcat um, yeah the hellcat's a really really strong choice my my main gripe with it is um if i just side by side compare it to a chaffee which you kind of have to do because mm -hmm. they take the same slot mm -hmm. i find myself taking the chaffee every day of the week yeah and it doesn't have the same he profile i don't think because it is a heavy at gun uh um, it should it should go down to two inches with a heavy at oh, it does you're right yeah. it does yeah. you're right so it's the same he profile uh, it yeah. just doesn't have the cute rule named on it. I'm just getting <laughs> you're, you're basically trading one armor point because the, the Hellcat's a seven. Mm -hmm. You're basically trading an armor point for uh, an anti-tank gun upgrade, which I guess depending on your local scene could be all the difference. But for us, we find that uh, we don't see medium vehicles that often. Um, and even if you do see them, a medium anti-tank gun is, is sufficient most of the time. Yeah, it's it's not a heavy anti-tank gun. Don't get me wrong, but it's it's efficient. You'll you'll scare it. That's for sure. Uh, yeah. And so I find that point like pound for pound, basically, I'll take the chaffee any day of the week. What um what I think is absolutely slept on, and this is going to be a little bit of a less exciting pick, I think, is the Dodge three quarter ton transport. I'm sorry. You mean the most efficient uh, point <laughs> transport in the game? Yeah. You mean the hotness? <laughs> uh, yeah. They are the beep, uh, the big Jeep is, uh, <laughs> whew, it's popular. Yeah. Wait, are you talking about the transport or the, yeah. the gun? No, the transport. the transport. Yeah, man, this is where it's at. I've heard a lot of competitive podcasts like the Juggernauts and um, uh, our buddy Al Unicom in Scotland mm. talking yeah. about how this is the, the best transport in the game, hands down. No one yeah. does it better. I'd yeah. like to quietly point out that the Japanese have literally the same entry in their book and no one talks Ooh. about it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I Surprise! Guess with, with Banzai, you don't need a transport, right? <laughs> Only if you're playing Japanese wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> Speaking of hot takes, anyway. Yeah, it's... Okay, well, I, I don't see people talking about it as much as often. I see a lot of like people on... Um, on Facebook being like, oh, what transport should I take? And then you mentioned the Dodge three-quarter ton, and they're like, oh, you mean the three-man Jeep? I'm like, no, 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 the, the three-quarter ton. The, no, no. the eight-man transport yeah. with that machine gun option. <laughs> yes, that thing. It's As as we Australians know it, it's a ute, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm not sure if you've actually seen photos of reenactors in it, but I think it, it's almost a clown car level of comedy when you've got eight guys in it. Oh, like, yeah. everybody's just hanging out the back. It's it's a it's a, it's a route. I love it. And it is a brilliant transport. The reason why it's better than a truck or a half track is because it is cheaper. It holds eight guys. Yeah. Yeah. Unlike the the Horch that I'm such a big fan of in the German list, which holds six guys. 
Right. It holds a few more, so you're able to get a couple more guys in there. Believe me, if I could get a seven-man horch, my <laughs> DAC would have gotten that much better. I, I absolutely wished I had an eight-man transport for that force. But it's the, the addition of the machine gun that like, the horch can mm-hmm. take. The yeah, fact okay. that it can move forward, fire, and then dump dudes out who then again fire. It's adding that extra, those extra, the weight of fire and the pins from a, yet another gun. Um, and not to mention you can shoot while you're driving up. And once people are out of it, if you can get it out of um, harm's way of being too close to an enemy model, again, it's just another machine gun platform in the back of the board. Yeah. It's so good. I love the thing. It's, it's yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see that it has a, has worldwide renown. It's definitely uh, a appropriately appreciated vehicle then. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Let's let's slightly switch gears to armored cars. Now, I know that some people love and hate the Greyhound, and most people seem to hate the M20 Scout car uh, because it is an 80-point heavy machine gun Jeep. Um, it just happens to be open-topped in an, an armored car. People, I think people would like it if it had two guns because then it would be a Bren carrier. Yeah. Uh, it just not wheeled. Or in that case, a um, a recce carrier, the Indian ki- version. Yeah, I think the I mean, the one of the most points efficient armored cars in the game is obviously the old machine gun jeep. Yeah, and people have been talking about how great they are since the beginning of time, and they are <laughs> great. But thankfully, in version two, you are forced to take only one. You can't yeah. take six of them anymore because that <laughs> was a really crappy tactic for a little while. But I really, I mean, obviously the machine gun Jeep, the medium machine gun Jeep, everyone knows it's wonderful. It's cheaper than the, the man pack version of it. And it's more mobile. It's technically more durable because you can take more hits with yeah. it. Everyone knows these things. I secretly don't hate a heavy machine gun Jeep. Now, because yes, you have fewer shots, but you have more potential to it. It's the plus one additional armor penetration. Now, yes, two less shots, but it's got plus one pen. It is more expensive. I, I really, what are we still looking at? Sub 50 points. I believe so. Isn't it 25 points for the machine gun? And then I think it's 15 for vehicle mounted machine guns. Uh, HMG is another 10. Oh yeah. Yeah. So So, it's 25. Yeah. It's 46 points. 46 points for a heavy machine gun on a Jeep. Yeah. I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're not getting as many points and it's not point efficient. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) But I, I don't mind it. Uh, I played with one the other day and I really enjoyed it. And now I'm thinking about adding one to my Marines because heaven forbid Marines don't have a machine gun Jeep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if I was going to do that, I'd probably go with the heavy machine gun. Um, a to add just a little bit more AT option to the list. Not necessarily that I'm looking to penetrate things, but with that plus one pen, you're able to actually reach out and put pins on vehicles that you can't with the medium machine gun. And yeah. again, I love the death by a thousand paper cuts. And if you can get a couple of pins on a tank, it means, again, if they pass their test, 
and they come at you, they're going to be minus one or minus two to hit. And yeah. that makes a big difference with the tank, who sometimes are only firing with one gun. Or if they have three machine guns, all of a sudden, all three of them are hitting significantly less often. That That is invaluable to me. And I, I'd rather pay the 10 points to use it for that. Not to mention shooting veteran squads with <laughs> plus one pen feels real good. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Look at me. I only need a four now. Have fun. I, I think the uh, to summarize my thoughts on the U.S. armored cars, yeah. they should just rename the slot to uh, machine gun jeep, and just <laughs> it should just be binary. It should just be yes no. Um, the the Greyhound, the Scout car, I'm not a fan of either. I think if you're gonna just the points and what you can do with them is not all that great. If you want to take the scout car, take it in the transport slot and just load it up with MMGs uh, and chuck, I don't know, chuck a 35-point medium machine gun team in the back and call it a day. (laughs) Look, uh, that said, that said, I have seen the white scout car used to horrific effect when you load it up with the machine guns and, again, pin sprinkling. And you just, you again, it's just one of those things. You drive up, you throw a bunch of pins, you do some wounds, and then when people go to shoot you, it's got recce and it drives away. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that can be real frustrating to face. Um, but, I mean, you, that, that is paying points for a specific purpose, which I don't mind. Um, but I wouldn't just take it willy-nilly. I would yeah. absolutely have something in mind for what I'm going to do with that before I buy it, if that makes yeah. sense. Uh, uh, admittedly, that's 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 the much better way of thinking about the armored cars, is if you have 80 to 110 points in your list, don't just chuck one in because you've got the points to spare. Actually think about what you're going to use it for, and if you can use it for that purpose, throw it in. But generally speaking, like the armored cars for the U.S. are not worth your time more often than not. Yeah. I think if if I was if somebody was either starting out in bolt action with with AUSA or moving to armies of USA, I would say just ignore the fact that you have an armored car slot and just ask yourself if you want a machine gun MMG. That will serve you quite well for some time. Yeah. I would like to talk about something that I've mentioned before, and I will probably mention again. I can't believe that this exists in this army list, and. Uh, Ugh. <laughs> uh, if you are looking for a cheap order dice in your American army list and you know who isn't the M4 or slash M5 artillery tractor <laughs> is 15 points and I do like to bring an artillery piece of some kind or another uh, be it an AT gun be it howitzer uh, even if it's a light one bring the toe you know why you bring the toe because this toe can have a machine gun <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a disgusting bit of kit. Like, the artillery seriously? tractor. Seriously? What the, <laughs> what the hell? Anyway. Yeah, it ends up being what, like 30 points for uh <laughs> for an attractor with an MMG on it? It's it's 40 points for uh a tractor with a heavy machine gun on right, it. And yeah. it can only take a heavy machine gun. Right. And okay, I yeah. discovered that by accident when I was putting together my G.I. Joe proxy army for bolt action and went, oh god. I have this artillery tractor model that has a machine gun on it, and clearly they can't have this in real life. So, crap, I'm going to have to cut the gun off, and, you know, it won't look like the toy. 
you know, I was trying to make things match and it felt kind of a little bad with it. And then I actually <laughs> looked at the entry and went, of course, Americans <laughs> put a machine gun on it. Yeah. 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 On that. I, th that is the doctrine. Can it apply machine gun? Uh, yes, yes. Apply machine gun. Well, let's wrap it up because we've been chatting about this for about two hours and people can just go out and get their Armies of the United States book if they don't already have it. Now, let's break it down. Overall summary, is America easy mode? Look, I think they're incredibly forgiving. I don't think they're auto win by any stretch of the imagination. But if you look at what people consider to be the strongest, most uh, efficient units in the game, they have most of them. And they do them better in a lot of cases because of their national rules. Do they have everything? Absolutely not. Do Does it mean that you can just take a net list and automatically one on the table? Absolutely not. And that's one of the great things about bolt action. I do think they are a very forgiving way to learn the game. But I also know that having spoken with a lot of American players and having gone through this myself, once you shift to another nation, it can be hard at first to... It's almost like you have to relearn the game because you automatically think what you can hit when you're moving around. Um, and all of a sudden, the, the math on that radically changes. And it can lead to some feel-bad moments when you're thinking, oh, no, uh, I, I, I'm all of a sudden not hitting. I'm not causing the pins. I'm not causing the casualties because of that additional minus one to hit. So, yes, I think it is, in some ways, training wheels, but not in a bad way, if that makes sense. And though the list does have some built-in secret army national rules, like the additional HE, like the additional machine guns, um, like the ability to put a machine gun on freaking everything. I think, I think it's a good list. I think it's a, like if you were going to talk power tiers or whatever, I think it is probably near the top, but I don't think it is the top um, because it doesn't necessarily have the versatility that some of the army lists in the game have. Gorshin, what do you think? Yeah, I think you've you've summarized it pretty well. I think if, uh, as you've pointed out, yeah, bolt action training wheels is can be armies of the U.S. and and as I said, I don't necessarily disagree. What I think often gets overlooked is that the faction also has a top speed limiter. So not only are you safe from falling over, you actually can't go as fast and as hard as some other nations with your your unit selections and and your vehicles and your squads and that sort of thing. So if I were to, to summarize US, I would say if you want to play them well, um, avoid avoid the traps of you know three MMGs and that sort of thing. Uh, avoid the gyro stabilizer trap as well. Have a have a mind in. Uh, have a plan in mind if you're going to take it and use it. But the important thing is to remember is that is that the training wheels can help you, but also they can slow you down when you're getting to that near top level. And I think that's why um, I would agree with sort of your placement there that it's, you know, it's, it's in, it's in the upper echelons of, of nations, but because you're spending your national rules on making the game more forgiving, you can't spend the national rules on uh, making your army more powerful. Uh, you know, if we like pound for pound, if you take the Japanese one with, with the Banzai charge, that is a really powerful rule that requires a certain play style. But because, you know, your Americans, your rules are to, to remove penalties rather than give you bonuses. 
that's typically what's going to happen is that you're you're going to have a harder time tripping over yourself um, playing uh, armies of the US but at, by a similar percentage you're going to have a harder time uh, making these big scary toothy lists yeah I'd agree with that absolutely well Gorshin man I have to really thank you for taking the time to come on man I, now I you guys were you were talking about some of the ways that you guys break quote unquote bolt action by using it uh, playing it 15 millimeter by you know playing the Vietnam rules and doing things like this to to take bolt action outside the box and I know I've been doing that a little bit by playing bolt action with Star Wars models <laughs> Christmas and I've been playing GI Joe versus Cobra games using bolt action rules. Uh, and the, you know, I've been doing that in a little while too. <laughs> so I think we need to have you back on, uh, perhaps with some of your buddies from Perth, so we can talk specifically about maybe different ways that we can put bolt action on the tabletop and experiment with it and have fun with this game system that we know and love. But in the meantime, man, it has just been such a pleasure to talk shop with you today. As I said, longtime listener, longtime fan of your guys' show, and I'm just really happy that you're able to take the time to come on. Have to have you guys on again soon. Thank you, man. And if people want to find your show, where what's the best way to find it? Because you guys are over several platforms, and I don't want to screw it up. <laughs> well, yeah. First off, thanks for having me on the show, Brad. It was it was really enjoyable, really really great to be on, and and I'm glad we managed to finally get that scheduling to work. Amen. We'll definitely we'll definitely be on for to talk about how we can break bolt in future. If you want to catch uh, historical miniature gamers podcast, we are. HMG podcast or historical miniature gamers podcast on Facebook. Our YouTube platform is Western Tabletop. That's where we upload all of our stuff. Mm -hmm. You'll our podcast is bolt action oriented on Western Tabletop. You'll find some other games that we play and some more battle reports and and things that are better suited to the YouTube platform. We've also got Western Tabletop on Facebook. If you're uh, tuning into audio, we've got um, Spotify. All of the you know. Google Play, iTunes, we're on all of them as uh, HMG podcast or Historical Miniature Gamers podcast. If you want to see the hobby stuff that I'm doing personally, uh, my Instagram is Scorching Productions. So you can you can check me out there. No, no capitals, no hyphens, no spaces, none of that sort of stuff. Well, man, if we're doing the socials, I might as well point out that uh, if you enjoyed today's show, I have had a lot of people messaging saying, please keep the bolt action content going. I know there's been a lot of it recently. I also know that some people said, can you cover some other games, which I have. Um, I will continue. I've got quite a few things up my sleeve uh, for future episodes. But as the weight of bolt action requests continues to be very strong, and I'm honestly enjoying the hell out of doing it, I'm probably going to continue to do a lot of bolt action content plus additional other things. But if you have any opinion about the, the sway uh, or the weight of numbers in this show, uh, please contact Cast Dice on Facebook, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. You are guaranteed a response by me. Hi, my name is Brad. Um, and it is always lovely to hear from you guys. Uh, it is a little weird to do this show uh, as a solo act. I know I always have guests on, so I have someone to talk with. But the rest of the time, it is generally just me. Uh, and it is always lovely to hear from people who have been messaging the show recently to say how much they enjoy it and to specifically talk about the episodes that they do enjoy. And that really does help me when thinking about what to do more of soon. 
Um, I had a lot of people recently message to say that they want me to get back into sort of the early days of Games Workshop. I know I've, I've spoken to Rick Priestley a few times, uh, particularly around the birth of Warhammer 40,000, um, Rogue Trader, things like that. I will uh, see about getting Rick possibly back on again. Plus, I've had a few other people who I've been talking with in the wings. And so look for more content of that ilk soon. Although there will be a few other things coming as well. But when I start talking about where we're going in the future, it's probably time to call it a day. Ladies and gentlemen, as our good buddy Casey always says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope that your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.